0: I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, The Character of a Servant. The Character of a Servant. As we've begun to look at these verses over the last several weeks, we've divided these up into four different headings. We looked at the seriousness of causing sin. We saw the mandate of repentance and forgiveness. We saw the reality and the power of faith. And then verses 7 through 10 of this week, we're going to look at the character and the duty. Of service. As we've been tracking along with Jesus on our way to Jerusalem here, we've noticed that he's going back and forth between the crowds, the Pharisees, and the disciples as he makes his way there to be crucified. And in the beginning of this particular chapter, we noted that he is currently giving some instructions to his disciples. The Pharisees will once again come into the spotlight in verse 20 in the next few weeks, as we'll see, And they'll ask him about the kingdom of God and when is it coming. And so we know that as Jesus is teaching his disciples here, that they are always within earshot of him. And as we've seen, Jesus is keenly aware of this and he frequently uses them as a reference point by way of contrast. And our verses today are not any different. And so Jesus tells them a parable in our text this morning that although it's relatively short in comparison to many of the other parables, it is nonetheless, it has some profound implications for us. And that is very simply this, that the pathway to exaltation is the pathway of humiliation. The pathway of exaltation is through the pathway of humiliation. So I want us to read our text together this morning. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. God's inspired, inerrant, and holy word says this. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Let's pray. Father, we just... Pray this morning that your word would write its eternal truths on our hearts so that we might be obedient to you, that we might take what we hear today, that it would not just penetrate into our eardrums, but that it would go deep down inside of our hearts so that we can live more conformed to the image of your glorious Son. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. No matter where you turn these days, it seems like conflict is all around us. It doesn't take one but a few seconds of turning on the evening news each night or getting on the internet and to see that conflict is in almost every sphere of humanity. There are global conflicts between nations, such as what we witnessed in the last couple of days with the U.S., British, and French missile and airstrikes against Syria. There is a constant conflict in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians. There is conflict between Taiwan and China. There is conflict between Spain and Catalonia, even between North Korea and the majority of the world as they attempt to pursue nuclear weapons. There are political conflicts conflicts between executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government, between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, the alt-right and the anti-fa, and all of those in between. There are legal conflicts between business owners and churches and individuals that often escalate themselves all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States as to what constitutes a religious right and freedom of speech. There are conflicts within our schools, between students that seem to come almost on a weekly basis. There are conflicts in our homes, in marriages between spouses, between in-laws who sometimes act like outlaws, sibling rivalries, and sometimes between parents and children. And sadly, there are even conflicts between the people of God within the church. But the single greatest conflict that any one of us will ever have to deal with is the conflict that goes on on the inside of each and every one of us as believers. Our own hearts and minds are a battlefield that we wake up to each and every single day. And there are no ceasefires to be called. There is no peace treaties to be signed. But there is only the daily battle and the denial of self And living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I are either advancing on the front lines of this battle and destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and putting to death the deeds of the body, or we very well may have deceived ourselves and not truly in the good fight of faith. To be in this battle, is to take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. To be in this battle is to reject anything and everything that will get in the way of your service to God. To be in this battle is to deny oneself and to abstain from sinful cravings. To be in this battle is to refuse sinful temptations and pleasures that would cause us to take our eyes off the author and perfecter of our faith and bring Christ to open shame. To be in this battle means to daily crucify the flesh, to resist the devil, to say no to ungodly attitudes, to bridle your tongue, to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and to bring your body into subjection for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. You and I are to constantly die to self and to live to Christ, and you and I must do that daily. And the reason that we must do that daily is for the simple fact that we are constantly looking for our pleasure our satisfaction, our joy in anything and everything but God. Where would you be if you didn't constantly engage in this battle daily? I'll tell you where you would be. You'd be in love with the world. That's where you would be. And so there is no greater conflict that you and I will be involved in than the internal conflict that rages within ourselves. And it is only by the power and the dependence upon the Holy Spirit in our lives that you and I will have any measure of victory in our day-to-day life. And one of the greatest enemies that we have to face on that battlefield, one of the greatest adversaries that we have to combat on a day-to-day basis that likes to rear its ugly head in our lives is the sin of pride. And that reason, the reason that pride is such a wily adversary is because it manifests itself in so many different ways. In fact, Andrew Murray said that pride is the root of every sin and evil. Jonathan Edwards went even further when he elaborated and said that pride is the worst viper of the heart. It lies lowest of all the foundation of the whole building of sin. Of all lust it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to be mixed with everything. Nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous of consequence as pride. And the scriptures attest to this again and again as well. In second chronicles chapter twenty six and verses fifteen through sixteen, King Uzziah He demonstrated the pride of ability. When he says that there in that text, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he had become strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. There is the pride of knowledge in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 10, where the prophet writes, You felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Matthew 23, verse 6 demonstrates for us the pride of position where the Pharisees who love the cheat seats in the synagogues and the respectable greetings in the marketplace. There's the pride of wealth that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, which says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, and that word means to be excessively proud of oneself. Don't be conceited or to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us all things to enjoy. There is the pride of spiritual attainment, like the disciples argued about in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, to which one of them asked, who is the greatest among us? There is the pride of being esteemed or liked, such as Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. There is the pride of appearance in 2 Corinthians 5 12. There is pride of spiritual experience such as in 2 Corinthians 12:7 where Paul said to keep me from exalting myself there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And there is the pride of self-righteousness as in Romans 10:3. All throughout scripture warnings, cautions, exhortations to stay away from the deadly sin of pride that manifests itself in a myriad of ways. You will never find a Bible verse that tells you that you are thinking too poorly of yourself. You're never going to find a text that says that you need to think about yourself more. You're not going to find anything that says you need more of you in your life. But the biblical witness shows us again and again and again, vainglory, conceit, boasting, arrogance, loftiness, haughtiness, being puffed up, being high-minded, scoffing and self-seeking are all words that the Bible uses to warn us of pride. It is the single most regular enemy that we have to fight within the battlefield of our minds. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 16, 18 says. And Proverbs 16, 5 has even stronger language for us. And it says this, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Let me read that to you again. So you feel the actual weight of that verse. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. You can't find another word that describes the divine hatred that God has towards those who are proud in heart, other than abomination. And beloved, pride manifests itself in so many different ways in our hearts that sometimes we don't even realize that we are struggling with pride. When you look down at others because they do or don't do the things that you yourself do, and you use yourself as a reference point when Scripture is silent on their activity, you are exerting pride. When you receive something, and you have a thankless attitude, and you think that you deserved it anyway, or you actually deserve better than what you got, you're exerting pride. When you have such an inflated view of yourself that you think you don't have to serve anyone, Or that if you don't get the praise and the recognition for actually serving, you grumble and complain, you are struggling with pride. When you minimize your sinfulness and your depravity, and you maximize everyone else's by gossiping about them, instead of saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, you are exerting pride. When you stay at home and you try to do internet church and you see yourself as so completely sufficient that you don't need any meaningful relationships, that you have nothing to gain, nothing to learn from being part of a local church, you are exerting pride. There are an innumerable number of ways in which pride can manifest itself in our lives. But why is pride so deadly and so destructive? As Thomas Watson put it, he said, pride, "pride seeks to ungod God. Pride seeks to ungod God. Pride seeks to usurp God from his rightful, high and lofty position. Pride seeks to pull God down and to lift man up. Pride seeks to steal God's glory, and it seeks to dethrone the high king of heaven and place ourselves in His place instead. Pride makes man the one to be worshipped, and not God. In other words, a prideful person says that all things are from me, and through me, and to me. But the humble person says that all things are from God, and all things are through God, and all things are to God, so that he, in the end, gets all the glory. And that's really Jesus' point here in this brief parable before us. He introduces it by asking a series of three questions which are written in such a way we already know the answer. Look at verse 7 with me where it says this. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will come to say to him when he is coming from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? And so Jesus uses an illustration of something that would be familiar with them to make a point, much like he would have done with the mulberry tree being uprooted and planted into the sea. There very well could have been a mulberry tree nearby. But this is not one that's too difficult to understand. And we don't need to assign typological items to each of the components of this parable because it's not an allegory, it's a parable. We don't need to make much of the plowing or the tending of sheep, try to track down some Bible verse somewhere and say, this is what Jesus intended when he mentioned the plowing or the tending of sheep uh, represents that. That would be allegory. But this scene is one that is on a small farm. And the daytime chores have just been completed, and a servant who plows a field and watches sheep comes in from a day's work. But we see there this word slave, or doulos in the Greek. And we generally think about the slavery that occurred in America, and the Civil War, and the Emancipation Proclamation, and all the brutality that went with slavery back then. But slavery in first century Israel was quite a bit different in that it was almost like a form of employment. And so when people compare slavery to the Bible to the slavery of the Americas, you're not comparing apples to apples. Slaves were generally better off than freemen. The unskilled, those who would be day laborers that would live from hand to mouth, day by day, knocking on doors, looking for food and work, much like the prodigal son did when he was destitute back in Luke 15. But slaves, on the other hand, enjoyed a bit of security since they lived in the master's house. And for us to be known as servants or slaves of Christ is not to imply that our master is cruel. Paul frequently called himself a slave of Christ, as in Romans 1, Philippians 1, Titus 1, and by no means could Jesus ever mistreat us. Instead, we are the Lord's possession, because he has purchased us from the slavery of sin and death, and thus also from the righteous wrath of God. And as such, he is completely worthy of our total allegiance. And yet this slave was here to serve his master, and not the other way around. It wasn't the master's responsibility to make life easy for the slave, but the other way around, it was the slave's responsibility to make work easy for his master. And so, Jesus describes a situation here that would have been unthinkable in the hierarchy of a society of first century Israel. And he asked the question that would have been, the obvious answer was, and that answer is, No one, nobody is going to tell this slave, come in, take a load off, get comfortable, grab a bite to eat, and then you can take care of me later. That would be outrageous. That would be like one of us going to a restaurant and letting the waitress and saying, hey, come have a seat, take take a load off before you take our order and get our drinks. It wouldn't happen. But then Jesus frames the question in a positive connotation in verse 8. And he says, but will he not say to him... Or, isn't this what you would really say? Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. Afterward, you may eat and drink. Again, it's a rhetorical question that expects a positive reply. In other words, it's like the master saying to the servant, don't come in here smelling like sheep and dirty from head to toe and expect to sit down and eat before I do. The master's needs... And the master's wishes come first. The master gets preeminence and not the slave. The master gets priority and not the servant. Now that may seem a bit snobbish, in that, but that, how many of us would ever possibly go into work and have our bosses say to us, you know what, just go ahead and surf on the internet all day today. Don't worry, you're not here for what I've actually hired you for. Wouldn't that be lovely, right? Wouldn't you love to have a job in the fire service? We're going to make every day casual Friday, and you can come work in your jeans and your overalls or whatever you want to do. But because you are hired by your employer, he pays you based upon your performance on what you do to, on a day-to-day basis. There are certain expectations of service to him and your duties. Ken Bailey, who has studied the Middle East culture in first century Israel, writes this. He said in a technological age with a 40-hour work week, powerful labor unions, and time and a half for overtime, the world of this parable seems not only distant but unfair. After a long, hard day in the field, such a servant surely has earned the right to a a little appreciation and some comforts and a few rewards. But Jesus is building on a well-known and widely accepted pattern of behavior in the Middle East. The master-servant relationship and its ancient and modern expression implies acceptance of authority and obedience to that authority, and it's a matter of honor. Bailey goes on, he says this, Yet the outsider needs to be sensitive to the security that the classical relationship provides for the servant and the sense of worth and meaning that is deeply felt on the part of a servant who serves a great man. These qualities of meaning, worth, security, relationship are tragically missing from the life of modern industrial workers of today's 40-hour work week. The servant offers loyalty, obedience, a great deal of hard work, but with an authentic Middle Eastern nobleman, the benefits mentioned are enormous. So then in verse 9, He asks another rhetorical question. This time it's framed in such a way that a negative response is solicited. He says he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? In other words, he doesn't thank him for what he's expected to do. He hasn't done anything special, only what he was expected. There wouldn't be any expectation on the servant's part of gratitude or praise or honor for what he is normally expected to do. He fulfilled his duty. So then here's Jesus' point in verse 10. It says, So you too, or just like this slave, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you say, We are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. In other words, don't throw out your back trying to reach around yourself and try to pat yourself on it. Don't try to stroke your own ego for all the things that you did for the Lord. Don't look at your own faithfulness or your service to God as if somehow God is just really impressed with you and he owes you divine favor for it. Don't try to exalt yourself for the Lord or to the Lord for being obedient. Because if we're all completely honest with ourselves, God gets a negative return on his investment. None of us serve him enough. None of us honor him enough. None of us extol him enough and glorify him enough as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. None of us serve him well enough for what he actually deserves. And your obedience to the Lord is not a cause for merit where now somehow God actually owes you a debt of gratitude. Listen, God never owes anyone anything ever. But in contrast, everything that you are, everything that you own, everything you enjoy, every single breath that you take on a day-to-day basis is only because of the sheer mercy and the grace of God. We owe Him. We are debtors to God. And so Jesus is warning here of the spiritual pride that can come to believers who think that if they don't cause anyone to stumble into sin... And if they forgive people regularly, and they exercise little faith in a great God, that they need to be aware of looking at all of that and thinking that I should have a better position before God than the next guy. My service to God should qualify my standing before God. And Jesus says, no way. Martin Luther, he wrestled with this very thing when he wrote this. Even though we are in the faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take all of that into account. But when you come before God, leave all the boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. I myself... This is Luther talking, I myself, having preached grace for almost 20 years, I still, I fell the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give his grace in exchange for my personal holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet this is what I should and I must do. Beloved, what can you do apart from God? The answer is nothing. It is absolutely zero. Everything that you do or can do or have been given is by the mercy and grace of God. We are justified by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We will be glorified by grace. And we will be rewarded in heaven forever by grace. And if you're walking around this morning with a haughty spirit, and you find yourself struggling with pride, and you feel as though you have this sense of entitlement, you probably have not come to the point of being absolutely stunned by the mercy and grace of God in your own life. You haven't begun to realize just how staggering and devastating that truth really is. God owed you and me nothing but righteous judgment and eternal condemnation in hell. But oh, for the grace of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of Almighty God. And when you find that truth staggering, And when your mind is completely blown by the reality that God redeemed you by a sheer act of His grace, when you see just how amazing that grace really is, and you remind yourself day in and day out, you won't help but become a more humble person. Listen, there is no room in the kingdom of God for spiritual pride. None. James 4.10 says this, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father, we confess to You that a lot of times we take grace for granted. and That we argue with Paul, who says that he was the chief of sinners, and we say, no way. That's me. But Lord, by your grace, by a sheer act of your mercy, you have redeemed us and bought us with the precious blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a humble people. Help us to look at the staggering grace that you have bestowed upon us to call us your sons and daughters. You've adopted us into your family. Father, we just thank you for this time and your word. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.